Считаю необходимым поддержать предложение Министерства обороны и Генерального штаба о проведении в Российской Федерации частичной мобилизации. This week in Russia, the stakes of their war in Ukraine just got higher. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced he is drafting hundreds of thousands of civilian men to fight in the war. And that is obviously a huge change domestically for Russians because they for a very long time were told that this is a very limited, targeted and successful operation that is fought by professional soldiers. Reporter Mary Lushina has been speaking with Russians dealing with this draft, like a man in Moscow who just got his summons on Wednesday. Already on Thursday, he is going on a training course and he's potentially going to be on the front lines in the span of two, three weeks. So it's incredibly rapid. Many Russians are panicking. People are trying to flee the country. People are looking for ways to avoid being summoned, avoid being called up. There are videos of people lining up at airports, stuck in traffic at borders. Tickets to other countries where Russians don't need visas are all sold out for this week. And I'm monitoring all these chat groups. Like, they're giving live updates of which man crossed the border, where, and, and like, how was it? What kind of questions the border guards asked him? There's a huge mobilization to avoid mobilization. And then there are the protests. According to an independent Russian human rights group, there were more than 1,300 protest-related arrests on Wednesday in over 30 Russian cities. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 23rd. Today, Putin is escalating the war in Ukraine after major military defeats. His strategy? More bodies. And staged votes in Russian-occupied territories. You know, I find this so interesting because it feels like up until this point during this war in Ukraine, um, we've gotten the sense that Russians partially because they have not gotten the full story about the war, that they have been in support of it, or at least Vladimir Putin has enough of the support of Russian people to keep going. But it seems like we're seeing both people trying to flee to not participate in this war effort, but also protests. Can you describe a little bit of what we've seen on the streets of people who are very publicly um, saying that they are not okay with what Putin is doing? Yeah, on the same day that mobilization was announced, we have seen the biggest outpouring of public discontent since the very beginning of the war because people, despite the fact that it's really, really difficult to um, show any kind of dissent in Russia at the moment because the punishment is so high, you know, even saying the word war or, you know, saying that you criticize the war can get you in trouble, can get you in prison, can, you know, get you fined. All of these things can happen to you, can be targeted, you can lose your job. A lot of things can happen. So it's still remarkable to see, you know, thousands of people come out across over 30 cities in Russia on Wednesday night to um, say no to war and say that they don't want to be mobilized and that they're not willing to die uh, for Vladimir Putin. And I think to your point that a lot of people, you know, kind of, it felt like there was a lot of support, but 
We also need to understand that for about seven months, the Kremlin has been telling the Russian public that it's a very limited special military operation. It's not a war. Mm. In March, Putin said, like, don't worry, reservists are not going to be cold. And now it all it's all changed. So the reaction to the war also changed. And how has the Russian government been reacting to that reaction of seeing people actually protesting? Well, the most evil trick that we've seen, and, you know, there are people in Moscow, at least, who protested and they got detained. And in the police stations, young men were given summons there. Like, the anti-war protesters are now being essentially called up to join this war that they're protesting. Hmm. So that is really, really you know, kind of out of this world uh, for these people who actually came out to protest. And the Kremlin said, you know, they publicly commented on on this and said, it's not against the law, so they don't see any problem with this. I saw some headline that that in Russia, Google searches of how to break your arm at home have gone up. Is that true? Yeah, I've checked it as well. It has gone up. It's not the most popular search. The searches about how to leave Russia, ASAP, or like visa-free destinations for Russians is much higher mm. on the rank. But there are mm. spikes in those kind of queries because, you know, one of the ways to get out of this draft essentially is to be not fit for service, which means if you have a broken arm or if you're sick in any shape or form, that means you can not go fight. I'm curious to hear more about the conversations that you've had one-on-one with Russians about how they're feeling in this moment or how they understand what's going on um, and why this seems like a kind of turning point for whether they are willing to go along with what Putin is doing. You know, we spoke to a mother who, you know, her son is 24, so he's very much at risk. And she's sending him to Armenia this week. That's it. I know, you know, one of my acquaintances, he's my former colleague, his father signed up for the war, um, even though he is over 50 and he fought in a, a Afghanistan war, but he went on his own. So there are some people who are volunteering for this effort. But the overwhelming mm-hmm. feeling that I get from conversations that I've had with people is, you know, they're shocked that this the war came home and that it's potentially going to target their relatives. And not many people are willing to go through with this. And how much does that matter to Putin? Like, does it actually make what he wants to do that much more difficult if people are, you know, kicking and screaming when they get drafted and, and when they end up in the military? Or is it like... Whether or not people like it, he has enough power to be able to continue with this war effort as long as he wants to to do it, regardless of whether people are protesting in the streets or not. I think he definitely has enough power to see this through because Russia has a really big, you know, administrative resource, which means that the just the judging the amount of people per capita who serve in law enforcement, um, army, police, uh, military um, services, officers, all this kind of stuff, they are... There are a lot of them, and they can definitely go and fulfill this order. Um, and, you know, some people are trying to avoid this. I wouldn't say, you know, protests, obviously, some people show that they are kicking and screaming, but there are also videos emerging on Thursday from several cities with people still lining up quietly and going to this bus. It's a very grim mood with mothers and wives and daughters and uh, their children crying around them. But they are going because it is criminalized not to do that. So once you've got the summons, you're essentially, they have you. Because if you don't show up, you can end up in jail. So you don't really have much choice. Um, And it's very, very difficult 
undertaking to try and avoid that and try to get out of this. So so what's happening right now, I mean, this is all happening just a couple of weeks after Ukraine had this very surprising counteroffensive where it took back control of some huge swaths of land in eastern Ukraine. So how much are Putin's actions now a direct response to what we saw in Ukraine a couple of weeks ago and a sense that the tide is turning in the war? I think this is a direct response to the dramatic losses that Russia has sustained in northeastern Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. Um, in a lot of ways, that was a culmination of a lot of problems that have been piling up um, within the Russian military. It's the lack of manpower, lack of equipment, um, problems with the chain of command, with the strategy, uh, and general underestimation of how great of a force Ukraine is. Um, so I think it was a catalyst for what we're seeing now, because Putin has also been under a lot of pressure from Russian hardliners who have been calling for this mobilization, who have been saying that Putin is not harsh enough, that Putin has shown weakness by um, suffering these strategic blunders and not responding harshly enough. Um, and, you know, perhaps he was susceptible to that. Perhaps he decided, yes, exactly, We this is the time to go all out. And he called for this measure, which, you know, he resisted for a long time. And it was clear that it's going to be unpopular because, you know, Russians in mass don't want to go die in, in the trenches. They've been living in sort of oblivion and try to kind of tune this war out. But now it's very real to them. So... If there are going to be a bunch of new guys who are joining the military and are going to be fighting Putin's war, what does that mean for Ukraine? I mean, are things about to get worse for Ukrainians if this is part of a kind of new wave of intensity coming from the Russian military? Well, that's, I think, every analyst is watching this right now. But so far, there are a lot of questions whether that's actually going to be a huge game changer for um, Russian forces or it's going to just prolong the suffering for both sides. Because um, on one hand, yes, you have 300,000 more people or potentially even more, but they're not, A, super motivated because they're they were essentially forced to go and fight um, in this war. B, it's not clear how well trained they are. And two weeks of training, if you you know, never fought is not enough. And even if you have yeah. some previous combat experience, for example, in the Chechen Wars, but that's still well over a decade ago. And also, you know, the third really important component here is whether the Russian army can have enough or supply enough um, equipment to mobilize all this force because they need personal gear, they need weapons, they need tanks, they need logistics to be working. And all of those things were problematic for the Russians, um, even with the current force that they have now, which is much smaller. So I think it's going to definitely help them to hold ground in Ukraine, but that's not a given that it will help them advance um, and do you know offensive action there. So you know, we'll obviously have to see how it unfolds, but so far it's really unclear whether that's going to bring the, you know, Russia's victory any um, closer to Vladimir Putin. And I can imagine that not only are many of these guys like completely new to the military or relatively untrained, but that they are now going up against a Ukrainian military that has been doing this for at least half a year that is incredibly motivated, pretty case hardened by what they've seen so far. And I imagine that that might be a more formidable challenge. Of course, and not only in the past years, because 
you know, we need to understand that for the Ukrainians, this war started in 2014 and they have been preparing for this in some shape or form for several years. They've been trained by some Western experts. They have way more Western equipment right now and, you know, more is coming. Um, they're now well trained to use it and use it effectively as they've already proved. So they are up against a pretty significant rival here. So it's not going to be easy. After the break, we'll talk about why Russia is holding referendums in the Ukrainian territories they're currently occupying. We'll be right back. So I want to also talk about some of the other things that are happening in this conflict. Um, we've heard that Moscow-backed officials in occupied parts of Ukraine are essentially staging referendums. Tell me more about these referendums, what they do, and, and why they're important. So Russia has been talking about um, conducting these referendums, which is really just a a pretext to illegally index these occupied territories and uh, add them to the Russian Federation for months. They've been talking about them since, you know, at the very least end of spring, beginning of summer. They were hoping that it's going to happen really quickly. It appears that they were also thinking that people in those regions will respond to them really well and will just welcome them with open arms, which didn't really happen in a lot of places. But it did not happen because of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So now they feel a little bit like they're running out of time. So they have, you know, pretty quickly scrambled to implement those plans and organize this vote that essentially, you know, the ballot will have one or two questions basically saying, do you agree to join Russia and unite with Russia? And that's essentially the only question. There's really not much to vote on. It's just yes or no. And yeah, once that's done, it's going to be the same as Crimea in 2014, where also, there was this sham referendum. Then they've recognized it as their own land, and then they took it. Interesting. I'm just imagining that scene of, like, so these are places in eastern Ukraine that Russia now has control, and they're basically asking everyone, like, so you want to be part of Russia, right? Like, check yes. <laughs> if so, check no. And, like, maybe that won't be great for you since Russian troops are everywhere. Um, and it, yeah, it just seems like a very fraught uh, kind of experience. Yeah, of course. And this is, again, occupied land with huge military presence and, you know, police, you know, patrolling all these ballast stations. So there is no, you know, no, even no facade here that's going to be in any way a fair election or even a vote. Mm -hmm. And all of the Western countries already said that they're not going to recognize this territory. Ukraine said it's absolutely changes nothing and they will continue uh, regaining this land. What's also interesting here is that Russia doesn't control none of these regions fully. Like, they have quite a bit of territory in the Luhansk region. There are separatists there who have been supporting Russia for years in Donetsk um, as well. But those regions are not fully under Russian control, even less so in Zaporizhia region. Um, the main town of that region is not under Russian uh, control. So it's really unclear how they're trying to, you know, grab these lands without actually having any control of them. Well, then what's the point of these referendums? I mean, why bother at all if especially the the, the wider world is going to look at them and say these are not valid elections? Putin has to present something to the public as a win, and that would be 
a claim that, you know, they've liberated those areas from the neo-Nazi regime, as they call the government of Vladimir Zelensky, um, and that they brought those people, Russian-speaking people, home. And that's their whole Mm -hmm. kind of motto there. We're bringing these lands home. We're saving Russian people from oppression. So he wants to sell this image as well. So when these referendums happen and they invariably come back saying, oh, look, surprise, surprise, like everyone who lives here wants to be part of Russia and they're so glad we're here. What will be the Ukrainians' response to that? Like, what will President Vladimir Zelensky do when he sees these, I think you could call them like sham elections take place? I think they're going to probably motivate the Ukrainian force even more to continue their advance, to continue fighting there and continue to regain the the towns that they've lost uh, to Russia in, in the previous months. And I think, you know, they've said it's fundamentally for them, that does not change anything. They still think it's the Ukrainian sovereign land. And that will just only mean that the fighting is going to go on. It's probably intensify. And so in that scenario, I mean, is there a world where where Putin could respond with nuclear weapons at this idea of, okay, we have now been invaded because Ukraine has tried to reclaim these territories that we now consider to be Russia? Yeah, that's the fear here, because under sort of Russian laws, if there is a direct aggression against Russian sovereign land, which it will be considered, again, in the eyes of Russian law, um, that, in Putin's mind, can mean that it unties his hands to use more severe weapons like tactical nuclear weapons, maybe strategic nuclear weapons against uh, whoever is attacking Russia. And they have been saying like, you know, these territories, we're there, we're occupying them. They're essentially already ours, but we need to like bring them home and legally, you know, unite them as part of Russia and, you know, to make this one great motherland. And if that motherland is attacked, that is another pretext for aggression. And I think that gets at the question that I know a lot of people, especially here in the U.S., are wondering about all this is like, where is this going? Like how, you know, we've been asking since the first month of this conflict, like when is this going to end? But it seems like this escalation, both in terms of the military mobilization and also this annexation vote, that these are these are things that suggest that we are nowhere near anyone, any side, giving up or or being ready to negotiate a conclusion. Yeah, it seems, you know, at least in public, Vladimir Putin is doing the exact opposite of, of moving towards negotiation, moving towards any signs of backing down. But he's also not known to do that. I think you know, I don't recall him ever apologizing for anything or ever um, kind of backing away from some plans without kind of re- repackaging and selling it to the public in a different light. Um, so I think he publicly also cannot afford to do that in Russia because he's been, he put Russia through this, through this war. Um, and if he just backs out without any gain, that would not go down well for him. But at the same time, I've, you know, there are also opinions among some Russian analysts that maybe in, you know, some probably ideal scenario, this sort of really tough rhetoric that we've been hearing is maybe a sign that he's willing to sort of raise the stakes and then go in for negotiations and hopefully just get a better deal out of it because he's been threatening Ukraine and pretty much the entire world at this level. So perhaps that will be the case. But um, so far, unfortunately, I think the fighting is going to continue and, you know, for at least 
the foreseeable future. You know, this force is getting trained now. They're going to probably end up in the trenches in the next weeks and probably in about a month, there will be reinforcements. So unfortunately, people are going to die on both sides. It seems like one of the other potential outcomes from this annexation vote is that if Putin can at least say to Russians, look, like we now officially have control of these parts of eastern Ukraine. These people said that they want to be part of Russia and we're just giving them what they want. And, you know, we have a a, a real standing to say that this is part of our country now. And if Ukraine attacks those those places or tries to reclaim those places, I mean, I wonder if Putin could frame it as, oh, well, now Ukraine has directly attacked Russia, that we are being invaded, that we are the victims here, and that that could be a source of even more escalation. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the fear that that might happen. And also, not even that Ukraine is invading, because increasingly we've been hearing from Russia that now, you know, why they're losing is not really because they're fighting against Ukraine. They're fighting against the entire NATO alliance. They're fighting against the United States. From like state TV propagandists, especially, you know, they've been selling this line that Washington is pumping uh, Ukraine with weapons. And now um, they will be directly essentially attacking Russian land once these territories are part of Russia. So that is, Mm -hmm. of course, very scary development here in terms of the rhetoric that's already been going on. And the big question, if that's going to mean that Putin is going to be even more aggressive in his attack. Mary, thank you so much for all of this. Thank you. Mary Lushina reports on Russia for The Post. Eliza Dennis produced this story. It was mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Maggie Penman. On Friday, our colleagues reported that the U.S. has privately been warning Russia against using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, saying that grave consequences would follow. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our producers are Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, and Rennie Svernovsky. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. Our intern is Natalie Bettendorf. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 